podcast contains potentially adult language, adult themes, definitely drinking, and possibly sexual context. Listener discretion is advised. Okay, welcome to Drinking with Authors podcast. I'm your host, Erica Lance. With me today is... Vanessa Valiente. And our guest today is Belinda Snodgrass! Okay, I've learned that our producer has figured out how to put an applause track on this now, so right now everyone's hearing applause because he's since I can't get a bunch of people to sit in my room due to COVID and clap, though that would be cool. I want to get to the point of fame where I can get a bunch of people just to sit in the room with me and clap. Um, okay. So what are we drinking? This is exciting because I found this finally. So this is the 19 Crimes Snoop Dogg Cali Red bottle. It Ooh. took me some time to find this. I'm super excited, but it's a red blend from 19 Crimes and it's a, a Snoop Dogg. How so it taste. is... It is amazing. It's actually, of course, it's really smooth. So <laughs> it is. It's so yum. I like bread blends, and I, I don't know. Nineteen Crimes never disappoints me. Okay, Vanessa, what are you drinking for the world? Oh, I am not as fancy as you, but a good old crowning Coke goes a long way. So that's what I got <laughs> right here. <laughs> Very cool, Melinda. What are you drinking? Okay, I am drinking a Rombauer uh, Red Zin. Um, mm. I, discovered this wine when I was at the World Science Fiction Convention in San Jose. And we went to this, you know, sort of tourist tra trap Italian restaurant, you know, and had to wait forever. But it had the best wine. I'd, and I'm not a huge drinker. So, and I'm like really wimpy, so it can't be too dry. And I went, okay, this is the best wine in the world. And then I had to call them because I couldn't remember the name. And so I called them a few months later and I said, hi, I was in your restaurant and you had this wine and I really liked it. Could you tell me what it was? And they were like, yeah, lady, it's Rombauer. And I went, yay. So then I discovered I could, now because I'm back home in New Mexico, I order it and have it delivered through the mail because also- All right. You know, I would, you know, I, I use the delivery service. There's Drizzly delivery service, and I'm super big fan of that. Although, ironically, you say that I found this wine in a local little butcher shop in Palm Harbor, which is near, we're in Florida, Palm Harbor. And I, I was like, this is awesome. And I, I, I bought one bottle, and then I looked at my boyfriend and I grabbed two more, and he's like, I'm like, listen, it's for the podcast. <laughs> It's, it's, it's tax, it's a write-off. It's tax deductible. Yeah. Hello, it's a tax expense. Yeah. But I am drinking, I will have to say, and we'll send you one of these, Melinda. We have drinking with authors, tumblers. So, cool. like a boss, I'm drinking out of one of those. You'll absolutely get one our guests do. And sometimes we have giveaways. Okay. So, um, before we get going on, oh my gosh, we've already had such a great conversation. We're going to talk about it again. Um, will you tell the audience a little bit about you and what you write? Okay, um, I'm a novelist and I'm a screenwriter. Um, I guess I'm going to flash my books here. Please. Okay. Um, Shameless so, self-promotion, go. Yes, right at the moment, these are the two books that are available. The High Ground is a space opera. And this is a sort of urban fantasy about a young woman lawyer who works at a vampire law firm in Manhattan. Um, they're both series, so there are more books coming. Um, and they're all finally coming back and available, which I'm very excited about. So 
that's one part of my life. And then the other part of my life is um, I, I write in Hollywood, I write uh, screenplays for television and I've done some movies that didn't get made. Um, and I've worked on Star Trek The Next Generation and Profiler and Reasonable Doubts and I've written a bunch of pilots that also didn't go to series and you know, that's what I do. And so I sort of have a foot in each camp and uh, with COVID, I just came home. You know, I was in LA at, for a long time working and then I thought, you know, this is crazy. We're not shooting anything and I may as well come home because I this is where I grew up and I love New Mexico. Where in New Mexico are you? Because I lived in Albuquerque for a little while and I loved it. Yeah, no, I'm in Santa Fe. Uh, actually, I live a little outside of Santa Fe and um, sort of an area called El Dorado Lamy, that area. Um, part of the reason is I have horses. And so this way I'm close to where the horses are at the barn. Oh, um, that's amazing. That's awesome. Yeah, I used to have them at my place back when we uh, lived down in Albuquerque. But, uh, you know, I, I did 20 years of cleaning stalls and having to get home to feed the horses three times a day and ride them. And I thought, I think I'd like to not have to do that. <laughs> um, you know, it's, it's frozen horse turds at seven you know six thirty in the morning when you're feeding and you're cleaning the stall and I was like, I do that so, oh my um, goodness <laughs> but uh, yeah no, that is awesome. Okay, so I have to dive first into when I uh, mind blown Star Trek: The Next Generation. So original Trekkie nerd. I'm also a Star Wars nerd, which is interesting because I I will do both. But oh my god, I'll write, I know I just it's. But don't get me started on that path because I go on a tirade. But Star Trek: The Next Generation, amazing. How did you get involved with that? Okay, I've been very fortunate in, in the people in my life. I mean, the thing I love about writing is that it's this very pay-it-forward kind of, of career. Um, people who are already established are always willing to help newcomers. And that happened when I made the transition from being a very unhappy lawyer into being a novel writer. And uh, it was Victor Milan who helped me with that, who sadly passed away a couple of years ago, um, way too young. And... Um, and then I got into Hollywood because of another friend, which is George R. R. Martin, um, little known guy. You know, we have high hopes that someday he'll break through. Yeah, maybe he'll maybe he'll do something oh, with his life. With, but George had moved. My to friend George R. R. Long time, and uh, George moved down here. We became friends. We were in a role playing group together, and then. We created this book series together called Wild Cards, which I didn't think to grab some copies of that. But anyway, there's 28 books in Wild Cards. So, it's a sure we so you only wrote a couple. You threw a couple out there. Okay, cool. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll mention the other and what it is because it's a shared world. And it's strange and cool. And I love it. But anyway, um, so George went off to Hollywood. And... Um, and we've been buddies and we've been doing all this stuff. And George goes off to work on first new Twilight Zone and then Beauty and the Beast. And my phone rings one day and it's George. And he goes, uh, hey, Snod. <laughs> he calls me Snod. And he said, hey, I think you'd be really good at this screenwriting thing. And if you'll write a spec script, I'll give it to my, I'll show it to my agent. I went, okay, sure. I mean, you know, because the one thing my father taught me is you never pass up an opportunity. If somebody offers you a chance, step up and take a swing at it. 
you know, just go for it. Please, advice to be given to everyone. Listen to this woman. <laughs> like, do it. Sorry, I had to interrupt. Like, seriously, take advantage instead of waiting. Go ahead. Take advantage Please. and always take a risk. Because, you know, what's the worst that's going to happen? You know, it doesn't work out. Or somebody says, no, it's not that big of a deal. So I looked at it and I thought, well, George was on Beauty and the Beast then. And I thought, I do not want to write a spec script for Beauty and the Beast because what if it sucks? And then George has to tell me, wow, you know, that really sucked. <laughs> I don't want to show it to the people, my boss. And I looked at LA Law because of course I had been a lawyer and it looked like it was so tightly plotted. I thought, I don't know how to come up with a story to sort of slide into this thing. And, um, and I grew up loving track. I mean, from the t when, when I was a little kid and I saw that, that first shot of the Enterprise, I mean, it was like a dream come true. It was like, oh my God, it's a spaceship, you know, because I've loved this since I was a little kid. And um, so I thought, well, you know, I'll, I'll, and Next Generation had just started. So I started watching and I became very interested in the character of Data. Um, which is kind of a sad thing that, you know, the most interesting character in, in Next Gen was the robot. But, you know, um, I loved him and I became sort of the data, right? I wrote a lot of things for data. And so I wrote this spec script called The Measure of a Man, um, which was a, a decision about whether data was a person or the property of Star Trek Fleet Command. And now here's my little PSA, <laughs> anybody who's listening. Um, Stay in school, always go to college. You know, if, you, if you're inclined that direction, no education is wasted. Because I could not have written measure if I had not gone to law school because it's based on an infamous Supreme Court decision uh, called Plessy, Plessy, no, um, Dred Scott, excuse me, had the wrong terrible Supreme Court decision. <laughs> Plessy, Plessy there are several, so that's not hard to do. Yeah, Plessy was the separate but equal, and Dred Scott was the runaway slave, is not in fact a person, even though he has managed to be in a free state, he's property, and I'm going to send him back to slavery. Oh my and goodness. And so I thought, this works perfectly for data, because he's a machine. I mean, you know, he's no different than the computer on the enterprise, so shouldn't he just be considered the property? So I, <clears throat> that was what I did. I wrote the spec script, and George warned me that you Never, ever, 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 ever sell your spec script. It's just a calling card, blah, blah, blah. And if they like it, they may have, you know, people may have you come in and pitch. And this is where George gave me the single best piece of writing advice, or advice in general I've ever gotten. Um, I said to him, I called him and I said, look, I've got this really cool idea for this script. But if you tell me I'm never gonna sell it, the spec scripts don't sell, maybe I should wait and hold it back and write something else and save this one in case I get a pitch. And George said to me, never hoard your silver bullet. Ooh. Oh. Best thing you've got. And I went, okay. So I wrote The Measure of a Man and they bought it and then they hired me on the show. <laughs> so, oh. yeah, that was, oh my God. And, and George still grumbles about it because he's like, listen, George R. R. Martin phenomenon in HBO, shut it. Nobody <laughs> wants to hear you gripe. <laughs> <laughs> so that was, um, that was how I got into Hollywood. And oh, wow. I worked on Reasonable, you know, after I did, I did half of season two and all of season three. Um, and then, you know, really kind of burnt out and, 
uh, I had intended to just come home and write books again, but um, I got hired on a show called Reasonable Doubts and loved it. Mark Harmon, Marley Maitland, great lawyer cop show. Yeah. And, you know, things just kept on happening. <laughs> so that's how it happened. Well, so you seem like you had a, a little luck fairy somewhere flying around that bestowed gifts. And I love the fact we were talking before the podcast started about being a nerd, because I talk about this a lot, especially um, that we, we were nerds when nerdum wasn't cool, like when it wasn't a thing to be a nerd, like you were shoved in lockers, pocket protectors, we were all friends with the guys on the Big Bang Theory, and they weren't a popular sitcom, they were just weirdos that you couldn't go to the movie with, like when my dad first showed me the Big Bang Theory, um, he's like, you gotta watch the show, and I hadn't watched it, I don't watch a lot of network TV, I binge a lot of Netflix and stuff, but now I can't stand commercials, so I stopped watching network TV, and he's like, you'd love this show, and I was sitting there in his can't believe I'm saying this in his theater room. That sounds super fancy. My dad's not that fancy, but um, I was sitting there and I watched it and he, he stopped and he's like, what do you think? And I was like, unfortunately I was friends with somebody like Sheldon where we'd go to the movie theater and he had to sit, he'd only go to the movie in this one theater at the movie theater. And he had to sit in this one space because of the sound. So after like four or five times of going through this and almost getting in a fist fight at Batman, um, I was like, maybe we just don't invite him anymore. His name was David. I'm like, maybe we just don't invite David to the movies anymore. Because the last time, literally in Batman, he almost got in a fist fight with somebody because, and I quote, they were in the spot. Oh, because they were in a seat. Oh. <laughs> so I saw that and I was laughing and my dad is like so and I'm like no I've been friends with all of these idiots like all of them I've been friends with and I love them and playing games and being nerdy and stuff and now it's super cool I love that it's cool but it's so funny to me that it's so cool and I was like yeah that where was that 30 years ago 40 years ago when I, when I was doing it like what the hell <laughs> Yeah, I mean, so, I, you know, when we could go to science fiction conventions, when we could actually, like, be with people before the pandemic, um, you know, I would still hear these grousings from the, no, we ain't got no risk, nobody respects us, and I was like, what do you mean we won? I mean, we won. We, everything, video games, I play video games, too, video games, me too. television, movies, I mean, you know, we the, the geeks and the nerds inherited the earth. So, you know, we kind of need to stop whining because we really kind of won. So. No, I agree a thousand percent. I'm like, when I see people, I'm like, no, Schnookums, you don't understand. If... <laughs> I used to dress up all the time, even Halloween. I dress up on any occasion I got. Now it's called cosplaying. Yeah. It was not, quotation marks for those listening, and that was not cosplaying back then. It was a weirdo nerd chick dressing in costume. <laughs> and people get paid to do it. I mean, it's like they're making money, and people are making money playing role-playing games online. And I'm like, I think of all those nights that we wasted here, you know, with Walter John and George and everybody. And we would play till three in the morning. Nobody was giving us money. You know, we were wasting our life. You know? Oh, yeah. yeah no. Don't they have, like, scholarships for college? My brother plays, one, I don't remember the name of the video game, where they pay, they'll sponsor these kids and, like, a full ride to college. And all they do is just game and like people go to like stadiums and watch them play and it's like this whole elaborate thing i was like i had no idea that this world existed it's it's pretty insane i, know I have 
three friends that make money off of people watching them over steam, mm -hmm. not steam it's one of those play video games they make hundreds and thousands of dollars a month with people just watching them one of them literally called me up and said hey do you have a french maid costume and i'm like well yes but what the what <laughs> like the answer is yes but why do you need that and they're like oh i need it for because i'm dressing up as an anime character to play this game and i'm getting paid two thousand dollars to do it for a night Oh my god. I'm like, I am in the wrong fucking business right now. <laughs> I mean, well, seriously. I enjoy watching, I mean, I love playing video games. I enjoy watching it. But this is like tabletop role playing with dice and pen and paper. And they're getting tons of money too. And in fact, I'm playing in two role playing games, um, two, two campaigns right now. Um, one is a Call of Cthulhu campaign and the other is a kind of superhero campaign. And and thank God, because we can't be with people. I mean, it's a way to, you know, at least, um, I mean, it's weird. One game, we are all on camera with each other. And I really like that because, you know, you feel like you could kind of sort of touch somebody. Um, and the other one, we don't have the video on. And it's a little bit weird that it's just voice. But, you know, at least it's getting its contact. And it's a fun game. So, you know. Is it Modern D20? Are you playing the superhero Modern D20? What are you playing? I can I can totally nerd with you. So here we go down the path. We're playing D twenty on the on the Call of Cthulhu game, and I'm not exactly sure what the system is for this um, for this other one. It's like a, it's a D ten system. It's like you know you add together your stats and skills, and if you you know if you have four perception and and three stealth, and then you you know add those together, and then you roll D ten. See, see, that sounds like a White Wolf game. It is. I think it's based on the White Wolf. Or yeah. You know, so. Anyway, it's it's fun. Random showing. Blah blah blah. <laughs> <laughs> we just start speaking in tongues. Yes. This is, <laughs> this is almost like when I go off on a dressage nerd thing on Facebook, and and some of the people who ride are going, "Oh, that's very interesting," and everybody else is going, "What the hell is she talking about?" I don't care. It's our podcast, and I've been now drinking Cali Red. We can talk about whatever the hell we want to talk about. I actually had. I don't know if you do. You know Robert Bevan. He writes the Critical Failure series. Have you read that yet? You're a nerd. You have to read this series. Okay. He failure. literally Critical Failures by Robert Bevan. But um, I found the book, and it's literally got a D20 with a one on it on the cover. And I found it on Amazon, and I was like, "What is this?" And he took like like if we were sitting here, and then suddenly we're teleported into the game as our characters, but we're ourselves trying to be these characters, and it is the most hysterical absolutely accurate representation of what it would be like because you know dungeon dragons cartoon all this stuff you're like i would be this cool suave i'm suddenly the twilight vampire no we would be idiots like we would be like i'm oh look i know how to swing a sword oh look at this cool hopefully this bugbear attacking me wouldn't kill me <laughs> okay now i understand somebody rolled ot ot on there yeah, double ot it it is an amazing series. So let's go back. So you decide to be a lawyer. What what prompted that decision? Um, well, it was the fact that um, okay, I've had a very checkered past. I I studied opera in Vienna, Austria. My goal was I was going to be I thought a great opera star. Um, I had a nice voice, coloratura, soprano but I didn't have a world-class voice. And my dad, my wonderful dad, who introduced me to, taught me to read and introduced me to science fiction and did all that great stuff, 
and told me to always take risks. Um, let me go off to Europe to study. And so I went to the conservatory. And after a year, a little over a year, um, again, I, I've, I've been fortunate in my mentors. Um, I had a gentleman who was my correpetitor, which is an, he was my accompanist. And, and one day I was rehearsing with him and he looked at me and he said, why are you here? You have a brain. You should go back to the United States and finish college. And he said, you have a very nice voice, but you don't have a world-class voice. You know, you're never going to make it at La Scala or, you know, or, or Covent Garden. You'll always be singing little operettas in small towns in Europe. And he said, um, and, you know, it was kind of devastating when you're 18, not quite 19, to be told your dream is shattered. And I'm also, I'm not a very large person. I'm five foot one and, you know, not very big. And um, just, I just don't have the instrument. So... I cried and I came home and my dad really, really, really wanted me to go to law school. Um, he, I think there had been secretly, he had wanted to do it. And he kind of, you know, I loved him, but he did sort of live out his, his, his dreams through me. I and want to be a lawyer, so you should train at law school. Yeah, you should go to law school. So, and also I graduated <laughs> with an undergraduate degree in music and history. And like you could spit on the street and hit an out of work historian, you know, somebody with a BA in history was like, well, I that and marine biology everywhere. Yeah, <laughs> I can go get a PhD and teach, but you know, what am I going to do? So I sort of just thought, well, okay, I guess I'll go to law school. And I got in and, uh, and I knew at the end of the first semester that I was, this was not for me, but unfortunately I was good at it. You know, I had making all the grades and then I got out of law school and my dad passed away and I thought, well, maybe, and then lo and behold, I passed the bar. And then you feel like, well, you know, I guess I better do this. So I, 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 I did it for three years. And then um, Star Wars changed my life. I mean, when I heard you say, I mean, I, I, yes, I worked for Trek, which means I know all the dark underbelly of Trek. I adore Star Wars. I would crawl over broken glass to work on any of those Disney shows. To write, I have a Star Wars novel. I'm desperate to write. I'm trying to, you know, like get somebody's attention. Hey, let me write this. Um, and um, yeah, it was my friend Victor Milan who knew how unhappy I was. Um, and I was still continuing to sing. I was doing like civic light opera, you know, to not go nuts while I was in law school. And then while I was working, and he suggested to me, he said, you know, I bet you could write if you tried. Um, you know, you're artistic and <clears throat> blah, blah, blah. And, and if you want to, I'll, I'll, I'll mentor you. And so I started writing in secret. And, you know, I would meet him. <laughs> we would meet at midnight. at the Well, this sounds scandalous the way you're saying it. I love it. It sounds terribly like we had a forbidden writing affair. We met at midnight in the dark alley. No, I, this sounds like very noir big boy on 4th Street in Albuquerque at midnight. <laughs> you have no idea the, the variety of personalities that came through the door at midnight. And we're sitting there, me with my little typed pages, you know, I'd give him a chapter or two, you know, at midnight, and he would read them and he would, you know, critique it and give me notes. And then we would talk and then we would watch drunk, drunk shit kickers set each other's straw cowboy hats on fire with their lighters. <clears throat> that was always entertaining. Um, I did the Rocky Horror Picture Show in Albuquerque for a little while. I was in cast. So I saw these same people that were at these. And I maybe was one of those people that you would run into there because I would, yeah. So. Uh, you know, go get a hamburger at midnight. 
Yes. Yes. Be- before you were mentored, did you ever write as a kid or any any kind of creative outlet? You know, other than singing. Uh, I'm just curious because it almost feels like you you started writing at 18 or 19. <laughs> Actually, I didn't. Um, I had a terrific English teacher in high school who encouraged Mm -hmm. me to write. And something I had forgotten that my mother reminded me of after I told her I had sold a book, I used to write plays for the neighborhood kids when I was a little kid. And and then we would perform them to the bafflement of our parents. And I had, and and suddenly it came back to me and I remembered because I had dragged all the the, the horses on Bouncy Springs, because I'd written a Western for us, and so we were riding them. <laughs> and I suddenly had this vague, I have no idea what was in the plot, but I did write that. And then I had this English teacher who encouraged me to write short stories, and of course, the awful, dreadful poetry that every, you know, teenager writes. Um, we're actually publishing, we have a publication company too, we're publishing Teen Angst Anthology this year, and we want people to send us all of their teenage stuff, literally just pictures of it, like, we all done it, we all have those horrible poems, or those love letters, or we're like, send it to us, we're going to publish it, because it's called Teen Angst, we all did it. It's, yeah. So, um, yeah, so I had done some and, you know, and you write a lot as a lawyer. I mean, you know, you're constantly writing briefs and, you know, uh, motions. And so, you know, it just sort of was in the, in the mix. It wasn't, wasn't that odd for me, you know? No, I, I, your story is so ridiculously inspiring and amazing. Like just your life story is amazing. (laughs) And like, Wow. So I actually was there opening night for Star Wars at the Chinese Man Theater. I was three years old. I was wearing a little ladybug dress. I had a balloon. I was with a friend of mine named Wally. He later did a Dr. Pepper commercial. Super fancy. <laughs> but I actually, that music, believe it or not, when I hear the Star Wars music, you know, the, you know, the screen roll, like it literally has such an impact on me. Because from a very young age, I was like, "This, these are my people." Like, <laughs> I, I always get chills every time I hear it. Like, I don't know. Like, there's there's very few shows that give me that level of epic. I don't know. Like, it almost feels like you're connected with all these people who just love the same thing, and it's just such a great feeling. Yeah, I I know. And and for me, um, it was Empire. I mean, obviously, I'm older than uh, than you guys significantly, but Oh, no, Empire is my jam. That's my favorite one. I love Empire. Well, that's the one that got me out of the office. Um, And Vic and I would, we had seen Star Wars together. I was studying for the bar exam. (laughs) So I was studying like 15 hours a day. And then I would, then we wanted to go see this new movie, Star Wars. And they, nobody at the theater had expected this. So they sold out. And then, so they said, okay, we're going to add a midnight feature. So we waited, we waited, I mean, from like, and I'll never forget it. It was like from six o'clock at night until we got it at midnight and this huge line of people. And there was a McDonald's just down the street and everybody, somebody would go, hey, who wants something? I do want a cheeseburger coke. And you give them money and they'd run down the McDonald's and come back. And we all waited, saw that movie and we're just like, oh my God. I think I saw Star Wars six times in the theater <laughs> to get me through the studying for the bar exam. And then, um, so Vic and I said, okay, from now on, we're going to go see 
any Star Wars movie on opening day, preferably at midnight, <laughs> preferably at a midnight show, I guess sort of in keeping with our, when he was coaching me. And so we go to see Empire and I'm miserable in this law office. I mean, miserable. And I'm writing with, Vic, you know, writing a secret Vic. And um, Yoda says to Luke, do or do not, there is no try. And I went, oh my God. The puppet is right. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I just am like, okay. Uh, okay, no, really, the Jedi is right. But, and I walked in the next morning and I quit it. Oh my God, that is so, you are epic. You are just like an epic human being. Oh my gosh. You're my hero. <laughs> I was just desperate. I had to get out of that office. And so I, you know, packed up my plans, packed up my diplomas, and I, dropped the letter on my boss's desk and said, I'm out of here. And I walked out um, and I'm going to try this. I thought I'm going to give myself a year to see if I can make it work as a, as a novelist. And it worked, you know, so I, I have to totally ask. wait. You gotta, you gotta wait. We gotta take a quick break. You gotta ask when we come back, we have okay. to take a quick break. We'll be right back with Melinda. Just give us a moment. This is the voice of Drinking With Authors. You are at our commercial break, and our commercial is, hey, do you want to be a guest on our show? Or do you have a question for one of the guests on our show? Or do you have a brilliant drink recipe that we've never heard of? That would have to stump us. But you could reach us at drinkingwithauthors at gmail.com or on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. You can direct message or even just leave a comment on one of our posts. We would absolutely love to hear from you. Uh, Vanessa, I stopped you before yes. the break, so please no, ask me a question, my darling. Since uh, you had your hands up the entire time for some weird reason. Oh, I'm so excited. Like, I feel like there's such good content here. Uh, so, which one do you find easier to write? Script writing or novels? I have to know. Screenwriting, script writing. Um, I was born to be a screenwriter. Um, I, you know, dialogue is my thing. I love to put mm -hmm. two people in a room in a situation and let them interact. And, um, and I hate description. <laughs> I have to struggle to write description. I mean, my writer's group, I, I would turn in my, my content for critique and Walter John would look at it and go, great dialogue. Are they in a white room? <laughs> you know, I go, um, right. So, you know, that has been one of the flaws because <laughs> I'm like, I want somebody else to handle that. Let the set designer worry about that. I don't want to worry about how to do that. Um, I have to say, I love that about screen. I do a little screenwriting as well. I write, anyway, I like that because it, it's, you kind of go, hello, director, here's the dialogue. Enjoy the rest of the presentation. You go, you do what you want to do. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I love it. And um, I love the fact that it's collaborative, that, um, I, I, I generally hate interior dialogue um, and, and there is none. I mean, you can't have it in, the, in a screenplay. And so it, it's gotta be on the page. And yes, you can write the dialogue, but if you have a good actor, they can do it for you with a look. And that is my favorite thing is that collaboration with a director, a terrific actor. <clears throat> and then it, you know, something magic happens. Um, and the other thing is I, I've always been, I plot very, very intensely on everything I write. Um, I think that comes from having, you know, done the law thing. 
and you know also and and <clears throat> george is the complete opposite we argue all the time he says you're an architect and i can't do that i'm a gardener and i'm like which a pant that's another way of saying pantser how the hell is george rr R. martin a pantser with all of his ridiculousness how is that even possible but he's a pantser um, you know he says oh my god he said i'm a gardener i pick up a seed and i don't know if it's a kumquat or a stinkweed i have to plant it and see you know and i'm going wow. my mind is blown right now i'm an architect i can't do a whole pantsing because then my my add brain goes squirrel and it's like it's stuck and i don't know like i definitely need to have at least a loose outline of some sort not an extensive one, but at least a couple bullet points at least. Not me. I'm like, I'm sorry. Am I typing today? <laughs> yes, I am. <laughs> I cannot work that way. I, I have, in fact, in the living room, there's a big corkboard with, um, with this novel that I'm working on. And, you know, it has the teaser, teaser, act one, act two, act three. It has the end of the book. It has the... It has the ends of act one and act two. And then I'm putting in what you call major, I call tentpole scenes. That's sort of what are those big moments? And then I'm filling it in. So, and, and we have to do that in Hollywood. I mean, that's how every script is written. We break it. It's called breaking a story. And it's either on a whiteboard or on a cork board. And it's there you have literally every scene is on the board uh, for a screenplay. But you know, for a novel, I'd have to have like seven of them. So I don't do every scene, but but I do outline intensely. And I, I feel like if you're under deadline, I think it's really helpful. Um, if, you're, if, if you're just writing you know, the, the book that you, you feel like you have to write from your soul and you don't have to you know, meet a contract um, or fans screaming at you, where's the next book? <laughs> you know, um, I think you can you know, pants away if that works for you. But I, I highly recommend outlining. I think it's really, really helpful. So. You know, it's interesting talking to a lot. Of, uh, we get the opportunity on this show, which is what I love about this show, is meeting people like you and getting the opportunity. There is no right way to do it for an artist. Like, as artists, we're, we're as writers, we're artists. Wow, so much Kelly read. Thank you, Snoop Dogg. Um, but, you know, it's interesting hearing that because I actually started to try to do a really robust outline for a serial killer um, series I'm writing right now. And it like, it kept jamming up my brain. And I'm one of those people that's like, and this, like I do a loose, like, okay, these are some of the big things that are going to happen, but I can't, because if I do that for whatever reason, then I get too like focused on what did the card say? You know, like, what did the scene say I'm doing? And I, I it's, it's interesting, but I understand that I have a friend um, that's a lawyer. I have many friends that are lawyers and I completely admire this profession because it is a lot of work to be a lawyer. It is a tremendous, I don't think people realize how much studying and how much work and how much you have to know. What kind of lawyer were you by the way? Cause well, my, my specialty in law school was constitutional law. Um, oh my goodness. <laughs> you can't kind of hang out a shingle and say, yes, bring me your big constitutional cases. So I ended up, um, I worked for the government briefly um, in a really kind of dull job, except the scientists were interesting that I was, you know, working with. And then I worked in a corporate law firm and it was soul killing. <laughs> so, you know, I, um, you know, just, it was, ugh, um, but I still love it. I'm fascinated with the law. 
and I love the law. And, um, you know, maybe if I'd ended up as an ACLU lawyer, I might have been happier and I might have continued. Um, I'm kind of glad I didn't because I really love my life and my career. There are so many fans that are very glad you didn't, just so you know. There are a, lot, a ton of people out there that are so glad you did not do that. But it, well, it was interesting because when I asked my friend, why did you end up, and he's very straight laced. He teases me. I do HR as a, a day job right now. Um, and he asked, I asked him, I'm like, why do you, why did you become a lawyer? And he's like, I love to write. He loves to write the briefs. He loves to pick apart the law and put it back together again. And he's like, I feel like it's almost writing a screenplay. And I'm like, yeah, I heart you, but it's not, it's not even close to that. Like what a few too many therefores and hearsays and nope, it's absolutely not the same. But I think he's actually right in a bizarre way because what he's doing is he's telling a story and he's telling the court, he's telling the judge, he's telling the jury, he's telling them a story and he's specific too. I had never thought of that. That's a really interesting I've got to ponder on that. I like that. Tell, tell your friend thank you because I think... I'm going to tell him and he's going to go nuts. I'm going to be like, so Melinda Snodgrass said this and tomorrow he's like, his head's going to explode. He's going to go into total fanboy mode. Yeah, I never thought of it that way. And I just think that's, that's really cool. <laughs> you know, well, and when I talk to him further about it, because I'm, I'm, I'm like this as an HR person, which sort of breaks the rules of HR people, but... Um, one of the things he mentioned was when you, you guys uh, as lawyers, and I say you guys because you're a lawyer, um, have to play by certain rules. Like you're confined by what's available to you as evidence, like what you, because you can't reveal everything. Like you have rules. There's like a matrix of what you're allowed to talk about. And that was his whole point was like, he can't, even if he knows something, that doesn't mean it's something he can reveal. Like, he has to do it in such a way to get the jury or the judge to see this particular item that he can't go, here's the item, look at this item. Because you can't do that sometimes. Like, some stuff is not, quote unquote, admissible. I'm using big words now as if I'm a lawyer. But it's not admissible. And I thought it was fascinating when he said this to me because I was like, oh my God, that is so true. Like, you can't um, do this like you can't just go in and go here's the facts let's talk about it and being a lawyer is very much a like you have to have charisma you have to be able because it's a game like there's a back and forth constant game of being an attorney because you can't just go here's the information here's the thing let's talk about it like you have to go i'm going to give you this morsel and then I'm going to give you this morsel. And I'm going to lead up to this grand finale of this show of what I'm doing. Yeah. Where I want and what I want, what I want the, the, the ultimate ruling to be. Yeah. So. Wow. It's interesting. Okay. So let's talk about, so you start writing with George R. R. Martin, you know, whoever that is. Um, <laughs> and you start this series. How did you get to 28 books? God, I don't know. <laughs> Otherwise, were you dared? Was there a dare involved? Well, what happened is we were playing in this role-playing game called Superworld. George was our DM, and we were playing it obsessively. I mean, like three and four nights a week till two and three in the morning. <clears throat> and George, at the time, I was still living in Albuquerque, and George was in Santa Fe, and he would spend the night, you know, he'd stay over in my guest room because it was so late, he'd want to drive back. 
So one morning I'd gotten up and fed the horses and I was making breakfast and George comes dragging out and he goes, there's got to be a way to make money off this obsession. <laughs> what if we turn this into a shared world anthology? And, and for folks who don't know what that is, it's, it's where George and I created the sandbox. We said, here is our sandbox. Aliens, aliens come and field test a virus on Earth and and, and, uh, and it gives some people superpowers and it deforms and twists other people into strange shapes and sizes and looks. And most people it just kills. And then we have superpowers and now we're gonna tell stories. So we created the, and George was like, it had to be set in New York, of course, Gotham, you know. And yeah. we, we came up with all this stuff and I suggested the alien virus because George hates multiple origin stories. And I kind of agree, you know, it's like I was standing a toxic race dump, I got struck by lightning, I got powers, you know. And instead we said, here it is. It was this one event that caused this thing. So then we went out and we invited friends to come and play in our sandbox. And over the years we've added, you know, writers drop out and sadly some of them pass away like Roger Zelazny and Vic and, you know, Ed Bryant and various people. But we brought in people and the first way you get is George and I, it's invitation only. So George and I will discuss when we're ready to open it up and take new people in. Who do we think would work well with others? You know, would, would be fun to collaborate because it's like a giant collaborate. It's kind of like doing television in a prose form. And um, they have to give us a character that we like. And then we accept the character and the writer into the consortium. And I wrote this big consortium agreement, thanks to Lynn Abbey and Bob Asprin, who were so generous with sharing what they had done with Thieves World and the lessons they learned with that series, Thieves World. So we avoided a lot of those pitfalls. And, you know, it's just been so much fun and it's just kept going. And we've been through, you know, multiple publishers, but we kind of just keep going. And, um, We've just there, one of them isn't out yet, but we've just finished two books that were exploring what happened with the alien virus and superpowered people in Britain. We had Knaves Over Queens, which is one of our most recent books that just came out. And I edited um, a new, another volume set in Great Britain called Three Kings, which is out in Britain, uh, in you know Australia, Britain and, and Canada, not available in the US yet, but will be I think next year. Um, and, you know, George and I have the fun of saying, okay, we're gonna, we kind of do them in threes. And so we come up with like a, the plot of a television series and the arc, and then we invite writers to come and tell us what the episodes are, you know, with their story. Here's the- That overview. is wonderful. So much fun. Yeah, it, it has become, in fact, I'm doing a, a panel tomorrow with some of the wildcard writers where we're going to talk about how do you work collaboratively in this large you know, this huge universe that has been going on for way more years than I want to talk about. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, I think there are 26 books out currently, but we're up to 28 in the pipeline and uh, we're, we'll, you know, so, and it's fun. I mean, it's so much fun to, because we get to use each other's characters and it's really interesting to see how another writer views your character and how they use them. Um, and so it's just like, I, I, I'm working on a short story and I just sent Carrie Vaughn, uh, an email saying, I was going to do this just from the point of view of my character, but I really think I need your character's point of view in here. So of course, and we always send each other the sections. So the creator of that character could comment and say, no, my character wouldn't say that, or they wouldn't behave that way. 
Um, and we, you know, you can't kill a character without the permission of the creator. So we have all these, you know, we have this humongous consortium agreement that's I think is like 20 pages long, you know, detailing how this all works. Um, but it's, we've been doing it for a long time and it all grew out of a role playing game. And I've made so many great friends and, you know, I invited Paul Cornell in who wrote for Doctor Who, uh, you know, wrote Family of Blood. Wow. And, uh, so Paul is one of our wild cards. In fact, I'm using one of his characters in the story I'm working on. So, oh yeah. my God, this sounds like so much fun! I'm like so jealous right now. I'm like my nerdness is exploding. I have to ask, like, how many how many writers have you know contributed to this whole thing? How we many have do you think about we have about thirty writers. Um, like I said, we a number of them we've sadly lost. Or some of them and we have a couple who are not who are non-writers but they gave us interesting characters so they get to be in the consortium and they get a point or two when their character is used in a significant way so um but it's a it's about 30 <laughs> and actually we just got an inquiry um how many writers there were and i'm actually kind of curious now myself because i'm trying to count them up and some people i mean you know, we also end up with writers who, you know, are hugely busy and don't have time. I mean, we have Daniel Abraham and Ty Frank, who are James S. A. Corey, i.e., The Expanse. They don't have time to write for wild cards right now, you know. So, um, you know, we had the benefit of some great stories from them, and now we understand. You know, Max Gladstone is somebody I brought into the consortium. Um, but he's doing pretty darn well too, and Max is quite busy. So, you know, people kind of flow in and out, but because I'm the co-editor along with George, um, you know, I, I'm in the mix on all of these things and all the various steps. You know, you, if listening to this, I, I can just say from my epic level of nerddom, like you have an epic life. You have, I, I, I would love to just be sitting in a room with my, my glass of wine, just watching this transpire because it is amazing. It truly is. And it's inspiring because one thing I love about the writer community for the most part, I'll put that caveat on there. Like I used the word caveat. Um, is that the support and just the family that ends up occurring in the writing community and you know who it's it's interesting because as i i get more and more um authors and talking to more and more the community around being an author i don't think people realize how huge it is if they just step outside and go talk to people because there, I think we all support each other for the most part, and we all want to see people succeed. Like, that's one thing about Jonathan Mayberry. He's like, he hasn't asked me anything. He's like, do you want help? I'll help you. Like, I'll help you do this because I want you to be successful. And I think a lot of authors are like that, and it's always amazing to be the community. Yeah. I, I, I feel like I've jumped. I think when I used to write in a vacuum, I, you know, you basically kind of just level off and you're just kind of laying, you know, stagnant. But I think I kind of grew as a writer, like leaps and bounds the moment I joined a writing group. And you yeah. get feedback from other people. Because, you know, you only know what you know from your own life experience. You need other people to kind of break up your uh, train of thought and, and have you force you to like think in a different way. And I, I, I cannot be where I am without, you know, my writer friends especially like in the, I would say in the tough times when you're dealing with rejection 
whether it's, you know, traditional or self-publishing, like they are your cheerleaders or your backbones. I mean, Erica, she's always cheering me on. Like I need her. I need her all the time. <laughs> cheering you on, yelling at you to finish one of the two, whatever we want to call it right now. <laughs> Yeah, no, I, I, that, that's so true. And, and I, every time I come back from a convention, I'm inspired. And, and, you know, my writer's group is kind of, you know, well, A, it's COVID. And, and also everybody is so busy. But, you know, the, the fun of like looking at Daniel Abraham is a brilliant writer. And, you know, I would, I'll read his submission and I go, how did he do that? You know, and it, it, it challenges me to get better and to do something or to try something different, you know, to, and, and that's the thing I love about this career and that, you know, lawyering was interesting, but there was a kind of, you know, there's a, a roteness to it. A sense. I, I feel like I've never stopped learning as a writer, you know, that every time you sit down, it's like, can I do this better? Can I make this sentence better? Can I, can I craft this? You know, I mean, it's just, I find it infinitely interesting. And nothing else I've ever done in my life has satisfied me in the way this has. I think that's perfect what you just said, because one of the things as an author, I think that's it's different. And there are other careers like this, but I feel like you keep having to level up. Like you have to go to the next level. I'm, I'm going to make a total nerd reference. I think you have to keep leveling up, right? Because it doesn't matter if you hit level 20, which normally in D&D &D terms is epic and that's Elminster, whatever. Ha, D&D nerds will get that. Ah. Um, but <laughs> the, and I'm just going to leave it there and not explain it. Um, then like, I feel like you keep leveling up and just hearing from other authors and being around them, you, you get to grow. If you do a good job of not being in fear and not worrying about what other people think and being willing to go, I can be wrong. I can be wrong about this. And there's a different way to possibly do it that enhances things to the next level. And, and, you know, <laughs> we always have the saying in our group, uh, we can always fix it in post, you know, it's like, okay, <laughs> it down, we'll fix it in post. You know, it may not be great right at this moment, but rewriting is your friend. Editing is your friend in Hollywood, you know, you can fix things. So. Yeah, no, totally. And that's, that's the thing you can keep growing. So you got to work around, um, writers to me are the backbone. Like it's, it's funny having done a lot of theater as a, uh, 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 a kid and as an adult because that's what we do and a lot of theater and being a part of it both from the writing side but also being an actor and stuff i'm not a famous actor but i did a lot of um uh, plays and stuff it is amazing how much the backbone of writing can be to a series to anything because you know you have the directing you obviously have the actors that have to be good but if that writing sucks it doesn't matter how great the director is or how great the actors are if the writing is terrible you're you're sunk like yeah. you know how how was that being in that environment as a writer so you did the novels and then you transitioned to doing the screenplays a little more right how was that being around the pressure and the fame and the demands that go along with all these other people having to feed in to your writing. I mean, the, the sad truth is that in the Hollywood hierarchy, the writer is actually the lowest of the low. I mean, in, in the great totem pole of power, 
the, the writer is like the little guy on the bottom with everybody else sitting on their head. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of depressing um, because they, they will give lip service to what you just said, that yes, this is the backbone, but they don't honestly respect it. Now they do much more so in Europe. I mean, um, which is interesting. The script is sacrosanct. And I mean, when I shot a TV pilot in, in Germany um, a number of years ago, and we were making changes on the fly because the director wanted changes and, and the German crew were just, they were shocked, they were shocked. And they kept picking it up, they kept picking up the script and they were going, but, but this is das Buch, this is the book. And, you know, and, and, and my line producer, Artie Mandelberg, who was just wonderful, but Artie picked it up and he said, well, actually it's just a series of suggestions. Oh my goodness. And, uh, and so, you know, it's, and that's one of the things that, I, you know, I always tell people when I'm teaching, um, <clears throat> if you cannot stand to have your work touched, do not go to Hollywood. I mean, everybody's gonna, I mean, um, there's a phrase we use, which since this is an adult podcast, I can use. In Hollywood, everybody wants to piss in the soup to make it taste better. And the script is the ultimate soup. I mean, that's where it all starts. And so you've got the director with input and the actor with input and the studio has input. And if it's TV, the network has an input. And so it's gonna change. And if you can't stand that, write novels. Um, and, and so, I mean, the weird thing is that you have a lot more power as a writer in television, which is why I prefer to work in television. And you have almost virtually no power in, in movies, um, feature films, it, unless you are the director. If you're the writer director, you know, if, if you're Christopher Nolan, great. If you're not, um, they're gonna say, thank you very much, goodbye. And, um, wow. and then they're gonna hire the funny guy to come punch up your dialogue to make it funny. And then they're gonna hire the emotional woman to come in and, you know, maybe make it a little more emotional. And, you know, all of that's gonna happen. And then ultimately maybe it's gonna end up on a soundstage. Television, the writer, especially the writer, the, the showrunner, the creator of the show does have more power but you're still gonna be negotiating with the network, the studio, the actor, the director. Although so, the directors have far less power in television. So in the, when you're like, for instance, using Star Trek as your example, so you say you have more power, like do the showrunners kind of give you like sort of an idea of how they want the season to go and then you have a wiggle room to like make it your own, but within those like set rules or, do you come up with the concept yourself and then the showrunners kind of see if it works? Like how does, how does that collaboration work? Well, Star Trek was sort of much more traditional adventure of the week. There wasn't a mm -hmm. sort of overarching plan. So basically, um, you know, your boss would, whether it was Morris Hurley or Michael Piller, you know, whichever boss or, or the unforgotten man, Michael Wagner, uh, who was uh, the showrunner of Trek for six weeks. Um, <laughs> until he quit in disgust um uh you know he would they would say look um okay you know what's episode eight <laughs> you know anybody got any ideas for episode eight um and so you'd come in and pitch ideas to your boss and uh you know then then you'd have to and if the boss liked it then you write an outline like an eight to ten page outline and then that gets sent over to the network and the studio and they either say yes or no or they have notes and then you get told, go, go write a script. Now, if you're doing a show like a Buffy, where each 
season has a specific arc, our person of interest, which is, I cannot say enough good about this show. Hello, kimchi's come to join. That's okay. It's the comfort Siamese that is 19 years old. So we're, we're going to... Ancient, ancient god. Yes, and he, he is obviously uh, Egyptian god, so we're going to let him be a part of the show. <laughs> Um, you know, there the showrunner is setting, you know, I mean, um, Joss Whedon was saying, okay, this is the year where we deal with the mayor, you know, this is the arc about, or this is the season where we deal with Lori. Um, the fifth and actually the final season of Buffy, all the rest of it is Apocrypha. Um, that show ended perfectly at the end of season five. It should not have gone on. I understand the drive because, you know, the money is huge, but, um, anyway, so, in that case, the showrunner has a great deal of control. And again, you're coming in with ideas that help further that plot line. But, you know, it's, it's less of a, okay, what, what alien crisis are we going to resolve this week? You know, or what monster are we killing this week? It's, you may have those, but there's always a little nugget that's pushing it toward that. And I love this new version. Um, I mean, it's, it's tough on writers because we we don't make as much money, you know, with these eight and 10 episodes, but it means that you can plot a coherent story and tell it and wipe it up in a really lovely way. Um, and, you know, but it does mean you kind of need to work on maybe a couple of series to actually keep yourself fed through the entire year um, mm -hmm. because it's shortened, much shortened time in a writer's room. Do you um, think, like, I look at, like, the Netflix series that are out. So, Star Trek The Next Generation, I actually, my favorite episode of Star Trek The Next Generation was the episode with the Q that wanted to kill himself. Because. Okay. Which season was that? Because I have a confession. I, I've never watched another episode of Trek. No, it's fine. It, it's a season, but um, Jean-Luc Picard ends up being a, a judge for whatever reason for the Q, which is interesting. But it's a season where he basically explains how, like, it's a this farming road, and there's, like, this wheat in this farmhouse and a dog in a rocking chair. And he basically explains how he's been the rocking chair, he's been the dog, he's been the house, he's been the wheat, he's been the road, he's been, you know, like, he's just done, Right. And I always thought that was such an impactful statement, but most network TV, not all network TV, so literally hate mail doesn't need to occur here, um, but a lot of network TV, they very much explain what's happening as they're doing it. It's not like as ingeniously thought out as I feel like a lot of the new television series and stuff like where there's way more like deepness to what they're doing like the I don't know if you watched Hannibal for instance which was a series which the first two seasons don't get me started on whatever the hell they did in season three but um the first two seasons were very like I feel like he just went way too artsy and I'm like did anybody tell you that was a terrible idea but you look at those and there's way more depth to the series right and the same is true with even like Stranger Things or Ozark or some of these series that are on Netflix, the How the Haunting of Hill House, where like it goes deeper. Do you find it different to write now for TV and for series than you did when you did the Next Generation and stuff? Oh yeah, I mean it's 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 actually much more challenging. I mean um, we had we had set up Wild Cards, our shared world anthology at Hulu. Sadly, it did not go forward to series, but I spent all of last year, 10 months in a, as the other executive producer on Wild Cards, 
where we worked out two TV series and we, we did a ton of that kind of analysis of what are we actually saying? What are we exploring? Um, and also binging has made a huge difference in how people watch television. Mm. I mean, um, and we can't write the way we used to. I mean, I had never watched Battlestar Galactica. I, I started after I started binging it. It is not a show that binges well. Um, no. It, at all. And now we have to write knowing that people are going to sit down and probably watch two, three, maybe even four episodes at a time. And so you have to have this sort of narrative drive and arc that just keeps carrying you through. And it, it's, a, it's a very different feel. And it's, it's a lot more challenging and it's a lot more fun, actually. I mean, you know, instead of this, we have an adventure, we tie it up. Next week, we have another adventure, we tie it up. I mean, this is, you know, there's, you tie up, you want to give people, endings are important. I, I, I have this little rant that I go on that, you know, I don't care how good the journey is. If you blow the ending, if you fail to stick the landing, your reader or your viewer will not forgive you. Don't oh my you. God, that is so true. That is so true. <laughs> like, it's like you give a promise to your, you know, whether it's in a novel form, movies, and then you get to the end and you're like, I invested all this time and this is where we ended up. I've, there have been many times where I've gotten so upset. I'm like, why? <laughs> Any of you play Season Master? eight of Game of Thrones. Uh, what? What? Sorry, Georgia. I'm just the last season of Game of Thrones. I was like, what in the crap sticks is happening? I literally like, did everybody get given drugs or something? Dan and Dave were burnt out. I mean, you know, it's clear they were burnt out and they should have walked away at the end of season five or six, let somebody come in fresh gone and done something else. It was clear they were just done and they were just rushing it. And that's too bad. But then you watch something like Person of Interest that has the most perfect ending of any series I've ever seen. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, my, my personal, I don't know if any of you played, either of you played Mass Effect. I invested yes. the hours in Mass Effect and I got to the end and I literally threw a house slipper at the television at three in the morning. I was like, I, mean, I was, I was, I was so angry. I wrote a hundred and forty page fanfic to that ended it for my shepherd because I was so furious. It was such a bad ending, and it it just, you know. And I haven't been able to bring myself to go back and replay the game. Now, you know, Age Origins, I've replayed it four times. I agree a thousand percent. I think. You know, I talk about this a little bit, is when people do series, I love the way you guys are doing your wildcard series. I think it's amazing because it's constantly fresh blood continuing to fuel it, right? Is when an author takes a series and goes down this path, and that you can almost tell when you're reading it the point where you're like, hi, you should have stopped doing this and written something else. Where they stop having the love of the... I don't know whether they have the, I can go down an entire list that drives me crazy because I'm like, you have this fan base that is completely enthralled with this, but you can tell that this person is checked out. They are not interested in this anymore. Yeah. And it's the same is true with television series. Like I love Dexter. Don't get me started about the ending of Dexter. I was like, what in the, who the, I literally think to myself, I'm like, give me the goddamn script. Give me the script. I will write it for you. I will fix this. Like, what are you doing? You know, sometimes it's as much as, like, I think you want the money, you want to ride that success. 
I feel like you have to know where your story ends and just let it be. Like, uh, have you guys ever watched The Watchmen, HBO? Oh, oh yeah. yeah. I was about to bring that up. Yeah, he just said, okay, this is done. It was, but you know what though, to me, as much as I want more, I, I thought they did a fantastic job. There was a beginning, there was a middle, there's an end, but then it could keep on going, but we don't need to know everything. You can let your your imagination go with it. Like, because I would hate for them to like do another season and then kind of just ruin it. You know, it's just, in my mind, it's perfect. Just the way it was told. Yeah, no, it was, yeah, I was just about to mention that. I mean, that was a classic example of saying, okay, it's done. It's done. You know, this yeah. is good. Um, and, and I love it when, I mean, you know, I hate CBS for ending Person of Interest, which I thought was seriously one of the best TV shows ever made. But because Jonah knew, and he knew he only had 13 episodes, he was able to write to an ending that was so moving and so powerful and mm -hmm. so perfect. And, and, and that's what I like is, you know, that's why I'm glad we're getting away from the 22 episodes, just keep churning it out. Um, you know, things have a natural life cycle and then let them, you know, let them be this kind of polished gym and move on, you know? No, I, mean, this I think- This is the golden age of television though. I mean, this is the best TV's ever been. <laughs> no, it, I love that TV has turned into a little bit what movies used to be. Like you, you'd watch a movie and you go, I want more of this movie. And then the sequel come out and you'd go, what the fuck were you just thinking? Like, what are you doing? Like, I felt that way about a lot of movies. Yeah. yeah I, w I will say like, I'm grateful for TV in the way that it's done for novels, people who write series and they get adapted because like using George R. R. Martin, like I could never imagine Game of Thrones as a set of movies. I, you can't you can't condense that world into like two hours three hours and that's it and I feel like now with Netflix and Prime they it allows you know authors to see their works of art become like these elaborate beautiful right. stories on the screen and, yeah. and then sometimes like V Wars something else happens oh yeah Mayberry and I had a conversation about what happened there. Um, so real quick, because we have to wrap up this episode, unfortunately, because I literally feel like I could talk to you for days. Um, what advice would you give authors out there? Writers write. So, and nobody has to give you permission to write. I'm speaking to beginners here, you know, people who you don't have to pass an exam, you don't have to go to school, you don't have to take a creative writing class. If you love to tell stories, nobody has to give you permission. So go ahead, sit down and write and know that whatever it is you've done, you could fix it the next day. You know, it's not, it isn't graven in stone, you know, so embrace it and know that it's a learning process and that you're going to continue to get better so that's my my advice um and never hoard your silver bullet yes <laughs> never hoard your silver i'm gonna write that literally i'm gonna put that on my computer never hoard your silver bullet melinda you have been so amazing thank, thank you, you so, so much for being on drinking with authors with us this has been thank thoroughly you. amazing it's been so much fun thank you so much <laughs> Absolutely. Okay, guys. Well, I've been Erica Lance. And this is Vanessa Valiente. 
and we will see you next time.